Okay, good morning, everybody. So first things first, I had to add this this morning because I got an email from Pastor Rich at 2 a.m. I, I got it later, but that's when he sent it. That'd be 8 o'clock in the morning in Italy. So that's, that's normal, you know. I mean, time changes. They, they throw me for a loop every time. It's hard, it's hard to imagine that on the other side of the world it is a different... I don't know, maybe you guys have an easy time with it. I don't. But... Um, he asked me to send love and greetings from him and Paula today. So, amore un saluti from Italy. How's that? Google, Google Translator right there. Also, did you know that today it's been two years since Pastor Rich had his open heart surgery? Two years. So praise God that he's recovered so well and, and God's kept him here with us, even if he's not here with us this morning because he's in Italy, but here with us on the earth. So, happy Mother's Day, again, to all you moms who are here, any moms watching online later or now. Anyone get breakfast in bed this morning? Anybody? Hands? No? No? Okay. That's like the the classic Mother's Day event, right? Breakfast in bed. My wife isn't really a breakfast person, so we didn't do that. She'd rather eat nachos in bed later. Um, you know, if you didn't get any breakfast in bed, that's not necessarily a bad thing. That's a card I saw. Breakfast on bed is the caption on that. I don't even like eating in bed myself. I'd, I'd rather eat standing up than eat in bed. <laughs> so um, don't ask Megan about how she feels about me eating standing up breakfast in the morning while everyone's running around the kitchen and I'm standing there eating my eggs like this. But I didn't do that today. That was my gift to her. You know, I sat down. I'm glad that all you moms are here today instead of out eating brunch somewhere. That's the other classic Mother's Day thing. But here you are. You know, you're here for some, as we're going to talk about, some spiritual food instead of just some, uh, some eggs and toast. But all, all this talk about breakfast reminds me of what we've been reading over the last couple of months in John chapter 6, really going all the way back to March. And that's the last time that I was up here, uh, was this lesson about Jesus feeding the 5,000. Uh, it was a miracle. He multiplied five barley loaves and two small fish, enough food for one boy to bring for lunch, into food for 5,000 men plus women and children. So we talked about that back in March. Um, afterwards, they had 12 baskets of leftovers when everyone had eaten. That same evening, his disciples, they were struggling in their attempts to row across the lake. And Jesus appeared to them walking across the water. And once he stepped into the boat, they immediately reached the other side, Capernaum. So that's where the rest of the teaching in John chapter 6 takes place, in the synagogue in Capernaum. Um, that's what we've been studying since, with a couple Easter lessons in the middle there. Uh, but I wasn't originally planning to recap two months of uh, church study here today, but I, I do think that it's uh, important to, you know, for context to think about how in this chapter, everything that we've been reading took place, you know, it's taken us two months, but it took place over a couple of days. You know, this is a continuation of what we've been studying. Uh, 
and this really, today's verses are kind of a culmination of everything else that Jesus has been talking about. You know, so I think it's helpful to remind ourselves of what, what's been previously said, so just bear with me. I promise this isn't one of those TV episodes where the whole thing is made up of clips from previous episodes. You know, how disappointing is that when you go to watch a show and, like, you've already seen everything that was in the show? They didn't give you anything new, especially, like, when you've been waiting, like, for some, some question to be answered, you know, like on one of those shows that has, like, a mystery or something. Like, oh, no, we're just going to talk about everything that already happened. That's not one of those episodes, so just bear with me. Um, once the people looking for Jesus found him in Capernaum at the synagogue, he told them that they weren't looking for him for the right reasons, but rather because they wanted another meal. And he said to them in verse 27, Do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. The people asked Jesus what they needed to do. What works did God require? They wanted a list of things to check off so that they could please God and earn eternal life. Laws to obey, works to complete. This is what they had turned Judaism into. A very long list of checkboxes that they could work at and check off and attain a man-made righteousness by doing. And of course, that was a futile effort. Jesus disappointed them with his answer. The work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. They were very unsatisfied with this, and they asked for a sign, as if Jesus had not worked enough miracles among them already. They also brought up Moses, giving him credit for the manna from heaven that God has provi had provided the Israelites in the desert. To me, this seems like a pretty obvious attempt to get Jesus to provide them with another meal, right? Moses gave us bread. You gave us bread once. He gave us bread for 40 years. Could you give us some more bread, please? Show us. Show us that you can keep doing it, you know, and we'll be here to eat. He told them that he was the bread of life who came down from heaven, and that was what they really needed more than another miraculous feeding. In verse 40, he told them, For my Father's will is that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. Jesus was explaining that he had something infinitely more important to give them than earthly food. He had come to give them eternal life if they would believe. That takes us up to Pastor Rich's section from two weeks ago when the people began to grumble and complain because he had said that he came from heaven, but they knew him as Mary and Joseph's son. They would have been happy to take food from him if he could provide more. They would have been happy to make him king by force after he fed the 5,000, likely with hopes that by his power Israel could overthrow their Roman oppressors. But they did not want to hear him say that what they really needed was to believe in him and that he came down from heaven. As the people grumbled, offended by his teaching, Jesus did not back away from it in the least. In fact, he went further and said in verses 53 to 54, I tell you the truth, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. So Justin did a great job covering this last week. Certainly, that's not an easy section of Scripture. After all, 
His message title was a hard teaching, wasn't it? Of course, Jesus was not stating that they needed to practice cannibalism, as Justin said. He had been speaking figuratively this whole time. So just as he wasn't actually saying that he was a loaf of bread that fell out of the sky, he was also not actually saying that they needed to consume his physical body. Justin shared this quote from David Guzik last week. Such radical statements offend many. In part, this was Jesus' intent. In response to those who twisted his words and meaning, he made the metaphors stronger, not weaker. He refused to back down from the truth. I am the bread of life, and the substance of that bread is his sacrifice on the cross, the giving of his flesh and blood. What he gave at the cross, we must receive. So Justin pointed out that there's this connection between the concept of eating Jesus' flesh and drinking his blood and the spiritual concept of receiving, believing, and partaking in his sacrifice on the cross. This is what Jesus was telling them when he said that they must eat his body and drink his blood. So that concludes our recap, previously in John chapter 6, and brings us up to the wor- this week's section, what we're going to cover today, John chapter 6, verses 60 to 66. I promise I didn't go over all of that just because my section is short. It's only seven verses, but there's plenty there to study. It's just important to remember the context, like I said, especially when the context is the first part of a discussion that Jesus was having there in the synagogue, and this is the reaction to it. So now that we've got that all fresh in our memory, let's turn there to John chapter 6, if you're not already there, and read today's verses together. Starting in verse 60. On hearing it, Many of his disciples said, this is a hard teaching. Who can accept it? Aware that his disciples were grumbling about this, Jesus said to them, does this offend you? What if you see the Son of Man ascend to where he was before? The Spirit gives life, the flesh counts for nothing. The words I have spoken to you are spirit and they are life. Yet there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus had known from the beginning which of them did not believe and who would betray him. He went on to say, This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless the Father has enabled him. From this time, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. Let's pray. Lord, we do just thank you for your word and that we can gather here today to study it. We thank you that you've promised to be here among us. And we pray that you, by your Holy Spirit, would speak to our hearts this morning. That we wouldn't just hear or read your word, but take it in and make it a part of us as you told the people there, Lord. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So this section, like I said, it's really like the culmination of everything that Jesus has been talking about here in the synagogue. And these people are the same people, many of them, who he fed when he fed the 5,000. So everything that's happened in John chapter 6 has been building up to this point where Jesus really just tells them, this is what you need to believe And they have to make a decision about it. Are they going to stay or are they going to go? In verse 60, there is a common reaction among many to this, to what everything that Jesus has been saying. It says, many of his disciples said, this is a hard teaching. Who can accept it? Some translations have who can understand it or who can hear it. Accept really does seem to be the best translation because it's not 
doesn't seem anyway that the people had a hard time hearing Jesus' words. You know, they weren't, they weren't struggling to make out what he said. And he had taken a lot of time to explain everything he was saying, so I don't think that it was hard to understand. What it was is that it was hard to accept. And the Greek word here for hard here is skleros. And skleros, the meaning of the word is harsh, rough, or offensive, not hard to understand or hard to hear. So that's why I say accept is most likely the best definition of, uh, and best translation here. David Guzik said about this, No doubt these disciples, disciples in the broad sense, not the narrower sense, found Jesus' words somewhat mysterious, but it was the parts they did understand that were really disturbing. The parts they did understand was what Jesus was telling them they needed to do. They should have been able to understand, all metaphors aside, that Jesus was repeatedly stressing the absolute necessity of believing in him as opposed to their own works. Jesus had used the word believe five times in the course of this discussion at the synagogue. And he would use them twice, the word twice more in the verses we're about to look at. But the Jewish people so highly valued their heritage as sons of Abraham and their own obedience to the law, much of which they had created for themselves by adding to it and amending it. Jesus was telling them they, needed not, they didn't need that, they needed to believe in him and receive eternal life. It was hard for them to accept it. It offended them. It offended their pride. Charles Spurgeon said of this, about the connection between eating and receiving by faith, in eating and drinking a man is not a producer but a consumer. He is not a doer or a giver forth. He simply takes in. If a queen should eat, if an empress should eat, she would become as completely a receiver as the pauper in the workhouse. Eating is an act of reception in every case. So it is with faith. You have not to do, to be, or to feel, but only to receive. So he can see very clearly there, from his words, that this the connection between eating. When we eat, we receive something. We don't make food when we eat. We receive it. And we don't make our own salvation. We receive that from Jesus by believing. So many of those listening just could not accept the idea of becoming a recipient of God's grace instead of working towards their own righteousness. Now, mind you that this idea of earning your way to eternal life through righteousness, it, it didn't originate from the Old Testament, despite the fact that that's where the law is found. The people that God called righteous in the Old Testament were not those who most perfectly obeyed the law, but those who humbled themselves, trusted in God, and had right hearts with Him. That's how we find flawed, sinful people like Abraham and King David having such close relationships with the Lord and being held in such high esteem. Not because they were perfect and obeyed the law perfectly, far from it. But they had faith and they had a relationship with God. God never intended for the law to be a means for the Jews to achieve their own righteousness but to show them their need for a Savior who now stood before them. But some, rather than understand that idea, had added to the law and twisted it 
and made it a way to become higher than others around them, to lift themselves up. Well, I follow the laws to this degree, and you don't, right? The Pharisees were especially guilty of that. They lorded it over the people under them that they were the only people who really understood the law or obeyed the law as fully as they did. But Jesus called them not to work for eternal life, but to receive it by believing in him. And this teaching was too hard. It was too rough, too offensive for them to receive. It's rough to have everything that you're proud about yourself taken away from you, isn't it? It's a little rough. You know, you, you build yourself up and you think, well, I'm a good person. Or I didn't do that, this, this, or the other thing, so, so I must be doing okay. And then Jesus said, none of that matters. None of that stuff that you've been trying to do to earn your way into eternal life matters. And so that's rough. That's like sandpaper taking away your pride, right? Just wearing you down. But it's necessary because we really need to see clearly how much we need a Savior and that all of that stuff doesn't matter. In verse 61, Jesus responded to them. Aware that his disciples were grumbling about this, Jesus said to them, Does this offend you? What if you see the Son of Man ascend to where he was before? These questions give more evidence that the people were not having a hard time understanding Jesus' teaching, but were offended by it. They weren't asking each other, what do you think he means? But grumbling about what he had said. They were pretty clear on it. Jesus knew exactly what their problem was, since he knows all things. And he asked, does this offend you? Because yes, it did offend them. This question is also translated as, does this cause you to stumble? Which it did indeed. The Greek word here for offend is scandalizo, which I read is actually a reference to a trap for birds and small animals with a stick holding it open called a scandalon. And I found that pretty interesting. The bird sits on the stick and it sets off the trap. By sitting on the stick, the scandal on, the trap goes off. So scandalizo would be like triggering a trap. So when Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1.23, we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness for Gentiles, but to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. That's a familiar verse. The word stumbling block there in Paul's writing is the same word, a scandalon. So this, uh, this word is reused in, in the Bible, and it's a stumbling block. It's a trap trigger. So for you young guys, I've, I've heard my kids and other kids saying this. Next time one of your friends is overreacting to something, and you say, dude, why are you so triggered? You can say, friend, I believe what is happening to you is that you have experienced what the Greeks call scandalizo. Perhaps you would like to discuss it with me? <laughs> then they'll be triggered by you. But <laughs> seriously, though, Jesus' words triggered a trap in their minds, a trap set by years of believing that their righteousness can only be achieved through works. There are still scandalons waiting to be set off in people's minds today. 
If you ever begin to share your faith with someone and they just freak out, you've hit on a trap trigger for them that's been set in their mind. You know, we can't take that trap away, that trigger. God has to do that, so we just need to pray that he would do that work in that person. That at some point they would be able to hear and receive the truth without reacting in that way and be saved. After asking them about this offense that had been triggered by his teaching, Jesus asked them another interesting question. What if you see the Son of Man ascend to where he was before? Now this question, it seems, from what I've read about it, is somewhat more difficult to determine a definite meaning of. I mean, of course, Jesus ascending into heaven is something we're we're pretty clear on, but why he asked this question now? Among the commentaries I read, there were several possible reasons for Jesus to ask this question. The most common explanation being is that they had been offended that Jesus said he came down from heaven. So this question was meant to ask, is it going to offend you when you see me return to heaven as well? Or, if you see me go back to heaven, then will you believe me? Jesus' ascension was not witnessed by many people, though, so that poses a problem for some commentators, that he would ask this question when most of these people weren't going to see him ascend. So another idea was that he's saying to them, you were offended because you wanted physical bread from me and for me to set up an earthly kingdom. Will you be even more offended when I return to heaven and have only provided a way for your salvation and not those things? Only. As if that isn't the greatest gift that Jesus could ever give us. Jesus' next words to them could support that thought. He said, The Spirit gives life, the flesh counts for nothing. The words I have spoken to you are spirit and they are life. You know, the further I get into this section and break it down verse by verse as I was studying, I think that this could have been titled a harder teaching. You know, there's just a lot here in just a few short verses and a lot of ways that you could interpret it. David Guzik said about this verse, this could well be the theme statement for this whole discourse of Jesus. He continually called them and us to put heart and focus on spiritual realities, not material things. They wanted bread and circuses, as Pastor Rich talked about a few weeks ago. But Jesus kept calling them to something better, something far more necessary for them, something of priceless eternal value, salvation and eternal life. If they would only listen to his words, which are spirit and our life, and believe what he was telling them, they would have that. Bible commentator Leon Morris noted that the spirit referred to here can not be our spirit, as we have no spiritual life of our own, but must be the Holy Spirit. And some translations say the spirit instead of just spirit, to make that clear. Believing in Jesus' words results in us experiencing the second birth and having new spiritual life. Because of this, his words are spirit and they are life. This reminds me of a well-known verse also spoken by Jesus in Matthew 16, 26. For what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? All the bread and fish in the world won't help in that case, will it? You know, 
We talked about it a few weeks ago, or back in March anyway. That lunch that the boy brought that Jesus multiplied, it wasn't anything fancy. It was something a poor boy would bring, barley loaves and two little fish. And yet these people are following Jesus around for days, hoping he'll give them some more, right? I mean, they, they probably could go back to their house at this point and get some barley loaves and fish with a lot less trouble. But they're still following him around, hoping he'll provide more. But that's not what they really need. What they really need is eternal life, you know, spiritual food. If we've believed in Jesus' words, believed in his completed work on the cross and his resurrection, we've experienced that his words are spirit and our life. We have received that spiritual life that the lost people around us simply do not have. Praise God for that. I've said it many times, and I'll say it many more, that I do not know how people go on functioning in this world without the Holy Spirit. I don't even rightly know how I survived for 22 years before I came to the Lord. And I'm not talking about anything crazy, like, like that I would like die in some terrible fashion. I wasn't really into anything that nuts. I just mean like day to day, how do you exist without the Holy Spirit helping you? I don't know. I don't know how I did it. Throughout this discussion, Jesus called the people listening to take their minds off earthly things and pay attention to the spiritual. We need to make sure that as believers we do the same. And we really are prone to getting caught up in all those day-to-day -day things, aren't we? Work, chores, hobbies, even fun activities that there's nothing wrong with in and of themselves. But we forget that we have a whole other dimension to us now, a spiritual one, that we're neglecting. You know, it's, it's so very beneficial to us to make sure that we have devotional time and read God's Word, which is spirit and is life, and to pray and experience fellowship with Him. Yes, we need to go to work and we need to pay the bills and we need to drive our kids around, we need to mow the lawn, cook dinner, all that other stuff. But let's not fail to feed ourselves spiritually. Jesus wasn't just talking about a one-time meal here, though certainly His emphasis was on that initial step of receiving eternal life, believing and receiving. But you wouldn't eat one meal for your whole life, and you wouldn't eat one meal a week, just come to church on Sunday, right? Eat one meal, unless you're into some kind of really hyper intermittent fasting trend, you know? I know that's going around, but I don't think there's anywhere you just eat one meal a week yet. That's dangerous. Um, so you don't want to eat one spiritual meal a week either. I know that's something we've all heard many times before. Pastor Rich talks about it all the time. But I need to remind myself too. Otherwise, I get busy and find suddenly that I've been starving myself spiritually for a few days on end. And maybe that's why I'm so out of sorts, so stressed out, so lacking in peace. You know, we desperately need it. Spirit and life. That's what God's Word is to us. In verse 64... It says, Yet there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus had known from the beginning which of them did not believe and who would betray him. After all that time that Jesus had been teaching them and all the miracles that he had worked, there were people there who were not convinced yet of who he is. We saw that when they grumbled, isn't that Joseph and Mary's son about him? 
Now Jesus comes out and says it. I want to give you spirit and life, but some of you don't believe. You're here for a free meal, here for the spectacle, here hoping I'll free you from Rome, here because you were bored and came to see something interesting, here because your friends are here, but you're not here because you've listened to what I've been teaching you and actually believed it. Jesus knew from the start who all of these people were who were there for the wrong reasons. They were called disciples because they followed Jesus, but they did not really truly follow and believe him. Sadly, there are people walking around today who would be called disciples of Jesus or be called Christians because they go to church every week or semi-regularly even, but they've not believed and trusted completely in Jesus. And we wouldn't necessarily know it. On the outside, everything looks good. They look like followers of Jesus, but they have not truly believed in him and received his gift of salvation. Why? Well, in verse 65, Jesus explains. He went on to say, This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless the Father has enabled him. We can't come to, the, to Jesus unless the Father enables us to do so. So we can't be saved unless he draws us to himself. God has to do a work in our hearts for us to even know our need for a Savior. Now, this goes back to the whole Calvinism versus Arminianism debate, election versus free will. So why don't we all get out of our seats and take sides? You know, Calvinists on the right, Armenians on the left. I just did the reverse, actually. It's your right and left, not mine. But anyway, I don't really want you to get up, and I don't really want that kind of a disturbance to happen on my watch. Do you notice that I'm positioned perfectly in the middle, you know, so I don't have to take a side? People have been discussing this for centuries. Theologians, preachers, Bible college professors, plenty of regular believers like us as well. Pastor Rich talked about it a few weeks ago, so that really gets me off the hook from having to go too deep into that. I do think that debating it endlessly distracts us from what God's Word says. By God's grace, we are called to believe and receive new life in Jesus Christ through faith. Jesus, of course, understood perfectly how divine election and our belief can work concurrently to bring about salvation. I don't understand it completely. But I have completely put my trust in Jesus. And so I don't have to understand it completely. It's enough for me. Jesus knew there were some there who had not put their trust in him. And he said that they had not been enabled by the Father. God hadn't called them to himself. So some people wonder, am I really called? You know, do, am, I, am I supposed to give my life to Jesus? I, I don't know. Am I destined, predestined? I'm not sure. And I think that's dangerous for people to get stuck thinking about that. Pastor Chuck Smith had something like this to say about it. I don't have the exact quote, but I'm paraphrasing. If you want to know if you're predestined, come to Jesus, then you'll know. Simple as that. He had a way with words, Chuck did. If you haven't already received Jesus as your Savior, don't let wondering if you're really called, predestined, or one of the elect stop you from doing so. I would venture to say that if you are thinking those thoughts that you want to be saved. And that's why you're wondering if you are predestined, elect. 
one of his. And the fact that you want to be saved means that God is already calling you and drawing you to himself. So don't let that be a hang-up. Don't wait any longer. But Jesus knew those who did not believe and would not believe here. He had divine foreknowledge of that, further proof of his deity, as if any more were needed after all of the other things that Jesus had done. So as this discussion came to a conclusion, we see in verse 66, from this time many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. He called them to make a decision. He told them to stop worrying about earthly things and focus on the spiritual. And because of this, many people left. Perhaps they had concluded at this point that lunch would not be served that day. So they went home to go find it. Jesus was not going to overthrow Rome and become their king. So they went back home to make the best of continuing to be under Roman control. Whatever their thoughts were as they walked away, they could not accept what Jesus had said to them. We said it before, it was a hard teaching, but it seems what was really hardest was their hearts. Now, John 6, 66. I think I have to mention it because I've heard people indicate before that the numbers 666 must somehow be connected to Revelation 13, 18, which says that the number of the beast is 666. Now, on the topic of the beast's number, I will most assuredly defer to others. I am not an eschatologist. And if you're wondering, an eschatologist is not someone who studies snails, but someone who studies end times. It sounded like snails to me. But escargot, right? So <laughs> I'm not going to get into that. But what I am going to tell you is that I learned in preparing for this that the verse numbers were not added to our Bibles until the year 1551. So trying to find meaning in the verse numbers would be to say that God allowed believers to go 1,551 years without a message that he had hidden there for them to get later. And I don't really believe that that's what God's in the business of doing. This isn't a national treasure movie. You know, <laughs> this is the Bible. Verse numbers are not regarded as spiritually inspired, but were added by man for convenience to help locate scripture sections and to quote it. None of the commentaries that I read mentioned any connection to this at all. And for good measure, I went through the Bible and found that there is one other chapter 6, verse 66 in the Bible, which is in 1 Chronicles, and it reads, some of the Kohathite clans were given as their territory towns from the tribe of Ephraim. If you can connect that to Revelation 13, my hat's off to you. you know. I think people have tried to make the connection with John 6.66 because it's something bad that happened. Everyone left. It's sad. I even found one article that it was called John 6.66, the saddest verse in the Bible. Now, I would have to go with Genesis 3.6, when Adam and Eve sinned and brought about the fall of man as the saddest verse in the Bible, but that's a matter, in my opinion. At any rate, all that to say, I can fairly confidently tell you that there's no hidden meaning in the verse number. Things like that, 
in my opinion, or another way for us to be distracted from what God's really trying to say to us. If we pay too much attention to the number 666 in God's Word or in our lives in general, we become superstitious and act fearful. You know, if we, if we get to, into that kind of mindset, we wouldn't have taken this church building because it's on Devil's Foot Road, you know? Now, if it was 666 Devil's Foot Road, I, you know, that might be a little too weird, but, you know, like... What I'm saying is we can't allow ourselves to be afraid of a number. God hasn't given us a spirit of fear. Shouldn't give that number uh, any more attention. You know, if you get 666 handed to you and your cell phone number, it's not some kind of a sign. You know, if you are looking for a house and it's number 666 on the road, don't worry about it if it's the right house. You know, I, I, I can't say enough that it's just it's superstition. That's, that's foolishness. So, back to what the verse does actually say. From this time, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. Now, one commentary I read said, had this to say, his rejecting their desire to make him political king, his demand for personal faith, his teaching on atonement, his stress on total human inability and on salvation as a work of God, all these proved to be unpalatable for many people. Jesus had not sought to keep this crowd happy. That was never his goal. He was there to do his Father's will. And at times, what he was doing pleased them and amazed them and kept them happy. But that was a byproduct of him being obedient to the Father and him being the Son of God. We likewise need to be careful not to try too hard to please others, but to be faithful to do what God has called each one of us to do. If doing the Father's will doesn't always result in Jesus, our Lord, being popular, we certainly shouldn't expect doing the Father's will to always make us popular. We are not going to be immune to the things that Jesus experienced, and we shouldn't concern ourselves with it too much either, if that happens. What we are called to do is to tell others both the simple gospel and a hard teaching at the same time. Some people will respond to us with, that's not for me, or I can't accept that. Who can accept that? As they said here. There are some who would rather try to earn their way to heaven by being a good person, doing good works, and somehow being worthy enough on their own to be given eternal life. There are some who would prefer to think that everyone gets eternal life, regardless of their belief or unbelief in Jesus. This group usually does have to admit eventually that there are some people that are exceptions to their rule, that everyone gets eternal life. Some people evil enough that they don't qualify. Serial killers, you know, committers of genocide, those kind of people. Oh no, everyone but them gets eternal life. And so their argument that everyone gets eternal life begins to unravel. There are, of course, even those who would reject the idea of a life after this one altogether. And I don't, again, know how people go through life thinking that this is all there is. But there are those people out there. They're in denial. Eternity is written on our hearts. The gospel is a hard teaching. It's not hard to understand, but it's hard for prideful humans to accept it. 
So as a result, we can expect to have our message rejected in many different ways when we step out to share the truth of our faith to the lost. But the good news is we're not responsible to change their hearts and convince them to believe. Only God can do that. As Jesus said here, no one can come to me unless the Father has enabled him. So we do our part and we pray and we share the message. Jesus has left us here in the world to do this until he returns. We just need to be faithful to carry it out, whatever the reaction might be. So this is where our section ends. It's certainly on a down note that these people left. In a couple of weeks, Pastor Rich will be back and he'll get to cover one of my favorite sections, what Jesus' apostles said about his teaching. I was this close to getting it, this close. That's okay, though. Sometimes God wants us to look more deeply at sections that we don't call our favorites, right? Things that we wouldn't normally think that much about. It is tempting, after all, to sum these verses up as a lot of people didn't like Jesus' teaching, so they left. End of message. But when we look deeper, we see the reasons behind it and what we need to learn from that. Some stayed. And you're all still here, right? I know that for myself and most of us here, the answer to the question, who can accept it, is I can. I can accept that. I have accepted it. Because the Lord did draw me to himself. He led me to trust in Jesus. He enabled me to come to him in faith. And he gave me new life. And for that, I'm eternally grateful And when I see that without him drawing me, I would be like the crowd who walked away, back to their old life of religious legalism, I gain even more appreciation for what Jesus has done for me. Now, I would love to think that there's no one here who would fall into that category, who hasn't accepted what Jesus taught, that we must believe in him. All that talk about eating his flesh and drinking his blood really did boil down to that. We must believe in him and what he's done for us on the cross. Believe his words, believe in that completed work, and believe that he rose again in glory. If you haven't fully trusted in him, but for some reason you're here today anyway, or for some reason you're watching this online, it may very well be that the Father is enabling you to come to Jesus today. There's no reason why you shouldn't believe and receive what Jesus has for you now. We don't know how much time we have here to make that decision before it's too late. So as we close, I'm going to give you an opportunity to do just that. Let's pray. Lord, we do just thank you for your word, for what you were, we were able to see in your word today, for what you reveal to each of us every time we open it. We thank you for that spiritual food that we have in your word. We thank you that for many of us here, this teaching was not too hard to accept Because you worked in us, we were able to receive eternal life as your free gift of grace through faith. We pray that you would continue to help us to share your truth with lost people around us and that you would draw them to yourself as you drew us. And I want to pray for anyone here today or watching elsewhere that today would be the day that you enable them to believe and receive salvation. If that's you today, if you feel God calling you to that, You haven't received him as your savior before. Jesus has already done the difficult part on the cross. It's easy for us. 
Just pray along with me. Lord, I know I am a sinner in need of a Savior. I know I cannot earn my way to eternal life. I believe, Lord Jesus, that you died to pay for my sins and then rose again. I want you to be my Savior from this day forward. That's it. Now for all of us, Lord, I do pray that you would guide us and direct us as your people. I thank you for your faithfulness, your mercy, and your grace that you continually show us, Lord. And I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. So now we're going to sing one more song. And you're all free to turn and walk away. And I'm not going to take it like you're leaving for good. You're going to be back next week. That's fine. Okay? Happy Mother's Day, everyone. (laughs) Have a good day.